Let's recall the tremendous meaning and purpose of our life in terms of our spiritual goals. The rebirth, liberation, enlightenment. And let's have a a recognition that we have the potential to do that. That it's actually something that we can do if we put our mind to it. So instead of saying, oh, Dharma's too hard or path is, you know, too long or the goal is too magnificent, little old me can't do that. Instead of having this inferior view of ourselves, let's realize that we have the Buddha nature, the empty nature of our mind, the clear light nature of the mind. And so these things are actually things that we can do. So we shouldn't let our own mind be our enemy and dissuade us from fulfilling our aspirations and potential. But let's train our mind so it becomes actually our friend. Because after all, it is the mind that will become enlightened. It's the mind that has the aspirations for enlightenment and the mind that has the potential for it. Let's believe in that in ourselves and aspire to fulfill our highest potential in becoming Buddhas for the benefit of all. We finished 56, right? Uh, Both the Buddhas and sentient beings were equally kind to us in our endeavor towards enlightenment. So then verse uh, 57 uh, to 59 again talks about, uh, it leads into some of the the meditations on equalizing exchange of self with others. So 57 said, says the sages, meaning the Buddhas, do not wash away the negativities of beings with water. They do not wipe away suffering or dukkha with their hands. Thus it is stated in the Buddha's own words, the Kangyur, and in the later commentaries, the Tengyur. Okay. So a few words on vocabulary. You'll notice that I didn't say that S word. That's written there. Because I don't think it gives the proper connotation. Okay, so instead of sins, I think it's better to say negativities. Sins is far too Christian of a word. And if you have the same reaction as I do to it, then, you know, it, it creates some kind of obstacle. So I think it's just the negativities. We have negativities, negative karma, you know, destructive mental factors. So uh, the Buddha doesn't wash these away with water and they don't wipe them, wipe away our dukkha, the three kinds of dukkha we talked about this morning. They don't wipe that away with their hands. So this is actually a reference to a citation in the Samadhi Raja Sutra, the King of Concentration Sutra, which is a Mahayana Sutra. And uh, this is a, it's a very famous quotation. 
So it, in the Samadhi Raja, it says, the victors do not wash uh, negativities away with water. They do not wipe away the suffering, the dukkha of beings with their hands. They do not transplant their realizations into others. It is by being taught the truth of reality that beings are set free. Okay. So if you think about it, you know the Buddhists have so much compassion. After all, they practice three countless great eons to become fully enlightened so that they can benefit us. So if it was in their ability to remove our negative karmas and our dukkha, they certainly would have done that before. But while the Buddhas are omniscient, they are not omnipotent. In other words, our getting enlightened is a dependent arising. It's not something that just depends upon the enlightened beings. Okay? So we have to create the causes and, of course, the Buddhas aid us in giving us the teachings so we can create the causes. They give us the guidance and the encouragement. Okay? But they can't kind of go inside of us and pluck out our negative karma because if they would have, they could have. And by saying that they can't wash it away with water, it's, um, it's really pointing out, you know, because we tend... Okay, we, we look in, in the Hindu religion, you know, the Ganges is, is a holy river. If you, you know, bathe in the Ganges, it purifies your negativities. Yeah. So, so then we say, oh, well, that's them who thinks like that. But then we have protection cords, and we think this is going to protect us. And we go to initiations, and everybody's there, give me some holy water. And in a long life uh, initiation, you can get trampled trying to get the long life pills. I'm not exaggerating. In India, really, you can get... Anybody been to a long life initiation in India? Yeah. You know, you could get trampled trying to get the white tar of health. So, you know... Human beings, like, look for some external substance, you know, that's going to do it for us. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's you know, now we look for the pill that's going to make us happy. You know, before they looked for the water, or also the long life pill, or whatever it was. And that was going to, to do it. And so the Buddha's really emphasizing here that, you know, the Buddha can't remove our negativities with some kind of external substance. They would have, they could have. Yeah. And they can't wipe away, they can't cleanse away our dukkha with their hands. You know, in the kitchen you have your little vinegar bottle and <laughs> thing and you clean that, uh, you know, all the way. I mean, wouldn't that be a nice, oh, you're suffering, squirt, squirt. <laughs> you know, clean it away with your hands. Um, you know, but again, it doesn't work that way, does it? Yeah. If the Buddhas could have done that, they, they, they would have. Okay, but they aren't omnipotent, although they are omniscient. So the way they help us, okay, also they don't transplant their realizations into others. So they don't take, you know, like you have the little plants out there in the little containers and you transplant them into somewhere else. That's not how we get realizations either. It's not like the Buddhists kind of 
go inside their mind and pull out a realization and transfer it. Or, you know, sometimes we even hear that instead of dedication of merit, people say transference of merit. We think, oh, that's like a, a wire transfer. You know? <laughs> they, they transfer their merit into my account. It's not like that either. Okay, I think that's a, a, not a, a really good translation of the term. Yeah. But how do the Buddhas help us? It is by being taught the truth of reality that beings are set free. So by giving the teachings on emptiness, by giving the teachings on the ultimate nature, that's how they set us free. Now, of course, not all, not all of us are ready to hear the teachings on emptiness. And if we heard it, we might even understand it, and it might be misunderstand it, and it might even be worse for us, because we might fall to a nihilistic extreme. So before they can teach us about the ultimate nature of reality, they have to teach us all these other things first. Yeah, about cyclic existence and precious human life and impermanence and refuge and karma and all the bodhicitta meditations and the Four Noble Truths and all these kinds of things we have to learn first so that when we hear the teachings on emptiness we'll understand them properly and practice them correctly. So that's the real way that the Buddhas help us. And so when they talk about the Buddha's body, speech, and mind, it's the Buddha's speech that is the most important aspect for us. Because it's through the Buddha's speech that we receive the teachings. Okay? So some people might think, oh, it's the Buddha's body, the Buddha's physical presence. Hmm? Not that. Or they might think it's the Buddha's mind, but we can't communicate directly with the Buddha's mind. So it's through the Buddha's speech that that's the, the principal way that they help us. So this verse 57 in our text is referring to that quote in the Samadhi Raja Sutra, which is quite an, an important quotation. Yeah, very important. Okay, and so it says, thus it is stated in the Buddha's own words. So that's the Kangyur, yeah, and that's the Tibetan term, the Kangyur. So the Kangyur are these texts here. Those are the sutras, yeah, that the... Uh, you know, and the tantras that the Buddha himself spoke or that were spoken under his uh, inspiration. Okay, so when, the, you know, the Buddha was, um, after he attained enlightenment for 45 years, wandered around <coughs> North India teaching. So all of those discourses were accumulated. You know? And then uh, there were also the Mahayana Sutras, Actually, this is the Tibetan canon, so we're going to have more of the Mahayana Sutras than of the, the basics, the fundamental sutras. Uh, and then, of course, the Tantras. So those are all things that came from the Buddha. But equally revered okay, are the later commentaries, the Tengir. So that's what's on this side over here. Okay, so the Tengir are the major Indian commentaries uh, that the great Indian sages and pandits wrote uh, in which they explain the meaning of the sutras. Okay? So again, this is, this is the commentaries mostly from the Nalandra tradition, in other words, from North India, Central Asia, Gandhara, that region, in the Pali um, tradition, the Theravada tradition, 
uh, some of the sutras they have are different, and they don't have the Mahayana sutras, and then they rely on commentaries that were written in Sri Lanka and translated into Pali, actually. Yes, they not the commentaries were not originally written in Pali. People think this, but actually... It seems like most of them were written in uh, Sinhalese and then in the early centuries A.D. translated into Pali because by that time Sanskrit had become quite the language of the intelligentsia in the north and the Buddhists in the south felt like, you know, we need a language comparable to, uh, to Sanskrit that is our holy language. So Buddha Dasa and a lot of the other ones, uh, not Buddha Dasa, Buddha Gosha, and a lot of the other uh, Pali commentators, you know, if they weren't commentating, they, they were translating things from Sinhalese into Pali. Yeah. The Buddha probably spoke a, la- a language um, that is one of the Prakrit dialects. So Prakrit is neither Pali nor Sanskrit. You know, and of course, across North India, they spoke many different dialects. Yeah, so who knows how many different languages the Buddha knew and spoke? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the commentaries written by sages Buri Narayana. So the the Pali ones, the, the these ones, some of them were probably pre Nagarjuna. Some of the texts, but I think a lot of them, you know, starting with Nagarjuna and going later, you know, Buddha Palita, Baba Viveka, Chantakirti, Asanga, Vasubandhu, you know, all all those people, and so that's why they they talk about the what is it the six ornaments, the six something and the two something, and one of them's ornaments and the other one I can't remember. But these are the great masters of the of the Nalanda tradition, and His Holiness wrote a very beautiful um, uh, request prayer, and he said that with, with those eight, there were some of his favorites who were who weren't included. So when he wrote this request prayer, he added some more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's quite interesting, you know, when you look at the Pali Canon, the Chinese Canon, and the Tibetan Canon. Okay, they have different things in them. There's a lot of overlap, but there's also, you know, some substantial difference between what is in each of the three canons. Are these in English? These are in Tibetan. Okay, so um, we need them translated into English. It took some centuries for them to get translated into Tibetan. Um, I know that there was a, a there's been a couple of translators conferences. And one in India, that was maybe about a year and a half ago or so, you know, they talked about beginning to translate the Kangir and Tengir. They met with His Holiness, and His Holiness said, translate the Tengir, translate the commentaries first, which was actually surprising to me. Not the sutras, he said the commentaries. And a friend of mine who was at the translator conference said he was a little disappointed because it seemed like many of the translators preferred to translate the Tibetan commentaries, you know. And it's, it's quite interesting. In years past, His Holiness mostly taught from Tibetan commentaries. But in the last several years, he's been 
teaching very much from the Indian commentaries because mm-hmm. I think he's really encouraging people to go back to the Indian commentaries, you know, and also because it's less sectarian because, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the Tibetan tradition you have the different traditions and sometimes people get quite sectarian and into their own tradition and their own teachers and their own interpretation. But they all stem from the same sutra and sutras and the commentaries. So by going back to the commentaries, I think he's really also emphasizing the common roots, you know, in the Tibet, the various Tibetan sects. But we very much uh, need them to be translated, and so some have started to be. But um, one of the the problems is that we don't have a systematized vocabulary for certain terms. And while some people are pushing to to get that, I think given Western individuality, it's going to be very difficult for people to actually agree on the terms, on how, you know, which terms. So I know they were talking at one of the translators' conferences of at least maybe having some kind of glossary with various people's translations for certain Tibetan terms. But then, like Tupton Jimpa, who's his holy, one of his holiness's translators, he doesn't even translate this, the one Tibetan term the same way in every usage because he says English is actually a more nuanced language and you have many more words and he, he doesn't agree with just translating the same term the same way. Whereas when the Tibetans translated, uh, they usually, the Tibetan, you usually had an Indian and a Tibetan working together. And, you know, never one or the other, but they usually work together as a team in translation, which is very wise because the Indian would know the Sanskrit better and the Tibetan would know how to put it into their own language better. So actually the king had them systematize vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And so they say that the Tibetan translations are very good because when you see one technical term, you know it is always this term in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where sometimes reading different English translations can be so confusing because they use very, very different terminology. Okay. Yeah. Well, wouldn't it make sense to translate from the Sanskrit? I mean, why go... Yeah, why go through Tibetan? Well, let's translate directly from Sanskrit. I think that's definitely preferable. The problem is that a lot of the texts, we don't have the whole Sanskrit version. You know, because Sanskrit was older, it was they, they wrote it on, you know, bir- tree bark. Yeah, so... Some Sanskrit texts they they have, or they have fragments of it, but many of the texts, there's no Sanskrit that is extant right now. But undoubtedly going to the Sanskrit would be better. But then many of the Tibetan teachers feel much closer and more loyal to their Tibetan translations, you know, than they do. It's it's quite interesting how that's happened. Mm -hmm. But we definitely need these things in in our own language. And I think it's very nice to have a a big expanded kind of glossary so we can see different ways in which words are used. 
you know, because we realize in our language that one word could have very different meanings. But when we go to learn Dharma, we want one term to always mean the same thing in every single context, and it doesn't. So a word, for example, like um, that's sometimes translated as discursive thought or conceptualization or conception, nampartopa, it can mean so many different things according to the context. Sometimes it just means a conceptual <laughs> consciousness. Sometimes, which is fine, we have conceptual consciousness. In other contexts, it means our, our mind that's proliferating with wrong ideas. Okay? Even the term rangjin in Tibetan or spavava, you know? This is the term, you know, when we say existing by inherent existence, you know, spavava city, it's that one. It comes there. It's actually Svabhava is the, the, the object of negation. But at other times, it can mean the conventional nature of things. Mm-hmm. And, sometimes, and sometimes it can refer to the ultimate nature, which is emptiness. Okay? So it's just like, it's like our word, um, like sanction. Sanction sometimes means you approve of and sometimes it means you disapprove of. I always get that word so confused because it can mean opposite things. Yeah? Actually, I was just listening to a talk by His Holiness and he was saying, therefore we have to be very careful when we listen to things and really uh, read things and really understand the context. Because it happened that even in Tibet people would read things see a specific word, not understand the context, and then give a commentary in which they describe the wrong meaning. Okay? Yeah? Would there be, uh, is there any, where different Buddhist uh, groups from different countries, uh, like the Chinese and the Tibetans and the Vietnamese and the and everything, where they, do they ever get to uh, conferences and they try to co- collaborate? Yeah. Okay, so do the, you know, do the, um, does the Sangha and the different traditions across various nations ever come together? There are a few, there's a World Buddhist Fellowship, there's a few different things like that. The thing is that they have gotten politicized because every time you want to have a world conference the Beijing government says the Tibetans have to come as a Chinese delegation and the Tibetans say we're not going as a Chinese as part of the Chinese delegation and the Chinese say well unless the Tibetans come like that we're not going to participate in the conference so you get all this kind of very unfortunate political stuff going on in what's supposed to be a Buddhist conference because of the, the power of the governments okay, that control things. Now, what's very nice, and here's something for you all to rejoice at, is in the West, for now for, I think we're coming on our 16th one, is it? 16th? So for this year will be our 16th year of the Western Sangha and some of the Asian Sangha that speaks English. We get together every year. 
you know. And so we've had people from the various Buddhist traditions here in the U.S., and we get together for a week and spend time talking and learning about each other's traditions and getting to know each other as friends. And that's been extremely helpful, you know. And it's brought about a lot of good feeling. So much so that, you know, when starting the Abbey here, I consulted with some of the abbots and abbesses of different Western monasteries about how, you know, what works and what doesn't work with Westerners, you know, because they've had experience. So we share things like that. Yeah, it's very nice. And, and to see some groups that, you know, started out being very close, then after a while, oh, okay, we'll send one representative to the conference. <laughs> Next year, okay, two representatives. And, and, you know, and so it's very nice, the kind of um, exchange that's going on. Yeah? And so you'll also see that some of those people, because of that, I was just watching, watching a video of His Holiness's teachings, and, you know, some of the Westerners in, the, in various Buddhist traditions, monastics, are going to His Holiness's teachings, you know. So, you know, sometimes we'll even go and hear teachings from each other's masters. It's quite nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, last year when I went to His Holiness's teachings, I remember um, there was, like, people were giving out pamphlets. I know it wasn't by His Holiness himself, but there was some talk about... Um, he was trying to unify the different uh, schools, mm-hmm. like because you know, in the uh, just Tibetan tradition, there's like Kagyu and Meguan group, but like right. there was a talk about he was trying to unify them. Yeah, he his holiness is very much against sectarianism within the Tibetan tradition, and he really wants to bring bring people from the different traditions mm-hmm. together so that they cooperate and so that they will learn from each other's traditions. And, uh, and he himself exemplifies this because he hears teachings from teachers of all the different Tibetan traditions. I don't think he's gone into other Buddhist traditions, but within the, the four Tibetan ones, he's heard teachings from all four. And so he's, he really is trying to promote that. It's a hard thing, though, because in Tibetan culture, they're, they're quite, they have this sense of loyalty to their own tradition that unfortunately, and, and some of it is very, very good. In fact, Tupton Jimpa, he says about us Westerners, he says, you guys have no loyalty. <laughs> you know, and it's true. I mean, people just go here and there, and they don't care who their teachers are, and they don't care what they promise, and blah, blah, you know, they go here and there and no, no sense of kind of loyalty and, and belonging and responsibility. I'm not saying everybody, but, you know, this is something that's very common in the West. But in the Tibetan tradition, in some ways, there's almost too much loyalty <laughs> in the sense that sometimes people are hesitant to go outside of their own tradition. I don't remember ever hearing saying that we're not supposed to go to the other traditions, mm-hmm. though, right? No. People will not, the teachers will not say that directly, but you get the feeling that that's what they're telling you. Although some teachers will. I mean, in the Nukadampa tradition, they tell people you're only allowed to go to our teacher and our teachings and nobody else, okay, which I don't feel is, is very good. 
But His Holiness, He actively tells people, you know, He's not saying go go and taste all 31 flavors, you know, but He's saying, you know, when it's time and when there's a teaching you think will benefit you, you know, then that's fine to do. Okay? Yeah? Do you think it's likely um, the rumors that when His Holiness passes away, given that the Chinese have kind of co-opted the whole Panchen Lama and the Dalai Lama, do you think it's likely then that the 17th Karmapa will become the leader of Tibetan Buddhism? It's, it's hard to say. Nobody really knows. Nobody knows. I, I'm, I'm not in any position to give any kind of speculation on that. I think what's more important is that we practice <laughs> okay. Okay. Next, next verse, verse fifty-eight. How is it that the yogi who meditates on compassion can actually take away the swelling sickness from the body of a dog and the lice infestations from the body of a person? So this um, is referring to in the Tibetan tradition when they talk about doing the taking and giving tradition, taking and giving meditation. There's always one story that's quite popular about one lama who did it for a dog who had been beaten by a stick and was really injured and in pain and bleeding. And he did the taking and giving meditation for that dog, and the dog healed. Okay, And so clearly there's some other kind of story about uh, somebody doing the taking and giving meditation and curing the lice infestations from a person. So this kind of question comes up because on one hand we're doing the taking and giving meditation where we are wanting to take on the suffering of others. Yeah. And at the same time, and give them our happiness. And at the same time we're told that nobody can experience the karma of another person. Okay, that we're the only ones ourselves who experience the results of our own actions. So, so then people say, well, how can these two things happen? So the usual answer is, it's mysterious. <laughs> Which means it's a dependent arising, but we don't know what the steps in that dependent arising are. Okay, So it must have something to do with that being having created the karma to be able to heal quickly from from their disease. You know, because normally when we do the taking and giving meditation and we're imagining taking on the suffering of others, you know, we're told very clearly, you know, that we can't actually do it. We're doing this meditation to increase the force of our compassion. And similarly, although we can't actually you know, give away our happy feeling, you know, then uh, still it's a good way to practice generosity and, and increase our love. You know, of course, when we do the giving part, giving away our possessions, our body and our, and our merit, okay, our body and our possessions we can definitely give away. Okay? Our virtue we dedicate, but we can't transfer it to somebody else's account, basically, because there's no accounts. Okay, but even to somebody else's mind stream, we can't transfer it. Okay, so how these things happen where there's a few rare occasions where somebody is doing this meditation and it successfully does take on someone's 
you know, illness or whatever. It's different. I don't know how that works, okay? But actually, the, the next paragraph talks about it. So that was the question in paragraph, in verse uh, 58, verse 59 says, but this is something that the omniscient one himself understands, okay? So the Buddha understands it. That the ability of the mind of the yogi who meditates on accepting the suffering of others and giving them his own happiness is inconceivable. So there we have it. Yeah. <laughs> the ability of somebody who... who you know, has that incredible great compassion and who has gained understanding of emptiness and who has single-pointed concentration, which gives certain psychic powers, you know, that person's ability to be of benefit is inconceivable. It's not something that we can easily understand. Okay? Now, when we do the taking and giving meditation, sometimes... Are, uh, we get blocked because we say, well, what happens if it works? <laughs> it's, you know, we're assured, oh, do it, but it won't really work. But you're supposed to think like it does work. But then we think, but if I think like it does work, what happens if it works? I don't want somebody else's cancer. You know, I can meditate, yes, I take on their cancer, I take on their suffering, I take on their hurt feelings, I take on their loneliness, I take on their depression. As long as it's only imagination, you know. But I don't really want to do this kind of thing. But we have to, when we do the meditation, actually think that we're able to do it and meditate like we want to do it and we are doing it. Okay, But when we take it on, we don't just imagine people's suffering coming into us and then hanging out so that we get completely ill and afflicted and dysfunctional. But it's very important when you take on the, the suffering of others that you imagine it as a thunderbolt or whatever kind of visualization works for you. And that it strikes at the lump of your own self-centeredness at your heart and destroys it. So this step is very important that you're using the suffering, the dukkha of others that you're taking on to destroy some of the causes of your own dukkha, the self-grasping, the self-centeredness, which you think of as a big, hard lump at your heart. Yeah, because when you were saying like it's not that we get the cancer, say, if we're using someone else's cancer. Like, when I was taught this, um, I, like my teacher always said, it's not that you absorb it into you, but it's dissolving. So, mm-hmm. is it uh, taught differently a little? Or is no. It's supposed to dissipate, right? Yeah. And well, you, you take it on. You have, you know, you imagine the others in front of you with their illness or their you know, unhappiness, whatever it is. And because we so often feel this heaviness at our heart, which is uh, our own self-grasping and self-centeredness, we, have, we have, even have that expression in English, don't we? Somebody has a heavy heart. Yeah. Or my heart's blocked. You know, we, so, so we imagine that as like a knot or as a blocked, you know, a block, an obstacle. When we imagine that others are taking on other suffering, we imagine that you're coming in the form of smoke or in pollution, 
And so it comes into us. Sometimes we might even imagine inhaling it. But as it comes in, we don't think that it then stays inside of us, but it transforms into this thunderbolt that hits at, you know, this lump at our heart that then dissolves and evaporates and, you know, is smashed. Some people don't like the image of, you know, a thunderbolt hitting there, so they prefer to use maybe, you know, soap. Uh, you know, it's, the suffering of others becomes like soap and cleanses all the, all the dirt at their heart. You know, so you can use another kind of image if that is, seems better for you. Okay, so that's verse 59. Then verse 60, we ourselves are in that same position as the supreme teacher who in a previous life was the charioteer in hell caught in the depths of samsara. Okay, so this is referring to um, the Buddha in a previous life when he was still a bodhisattva. He had um, taken rebirth in the hell realms as a charioteer. And he and a friend were pulling this chariot up, you know, a mountain in the hell realm with the henchmen of the hell beating them. And, you know, it's all burning iron and, I mean, really kind of horrible. And seeing the suffering of his friend, um, the Bodhisattva at that time, the Buddha in his previous life, developed great compassion uh, for his friend and said to the henchman, allow me to, to pull this up alone. You know, let my friend off. I don't want him to suffer. Let me pull this chariot alone. And so the henchman laughed and said, yeah, you kind of foolish person. You can't take on the karma of anybody else. And, and so he hit the Buddha on, a, on the head with the hammer. And at that time, uh, that caused the Buddha to die from the hell realm and be born in a god realm. So the meaning is that by the power of his compassion in wanting to take on the load of pulling this burden in the hell realm, taking on the load not only his own but his, that of his friend, by the power of that compassion, it purified you know, whatever karma there was to be born in the hell realms. And as a result, when that karma was purified, he was reborn in a God realm. Okay. So what this verse is showing is the power of compassion. And in uh, Shantideva's book, uh, he talks so much about the power of compassion and the power of bodhicitta because the, the thing is that um, our motivation is what determines the karma and determines, to a good extent, it determines the, the heaviness or the, the strength of the karma that we create if our motivation is strong or weak, if our motivation is for one sentient being or many sentient beings that influences the strength of the karma and the kind of the karma we create. So uh, when we are generating great compassion for all sentient beings 
or when we generate bodhicitta for all sentient beings, then because our mind is directed towards the benefit of so many living beings, countless living beings, then the good karma we create by doing an action also becomes limitless. Okay? So if you do something kind for one person with a motivation to help one person, you get the karma of having compassion and kindness towards one person. If you have the motivation to help two people, you get the karma from helping two people. But here, what we're trying to do is have, you know, want to help limitless living beings. And so then that karma becomes very, very strong. And so that's one of the reasons they say the bodhicitta is why it's so important to attain enlightenment, because we talked the other day about how we need so much uh, merit to become enlightened. So the Buddha, uh, the bodhicitta, is what enables us to create so much merit. So uh, And so that's why we try and do even simple actions in our life with the bodhicitta motivation. So we might just be, you know, people cooking lunch, okay? Yeah? So you might think, well, I'm, I'm cooking lunch for the 30 people here on the retreat. Or you might think, you know, these 30 people are representatives of all countless sentient beings, and when I offer the food, I'm offering it to all countless sentient beings. Okay? And when we offer our food, when we say the, the verses before we eat, you know, we're taking the food, and not just ordinary food, but thinking of it as blissful wisdom nectar, and then with a bodhicitta motivation, offering it to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And so then the merit becomes very great because we're offering it to objects that are important, the three jewels, and we're doing it with a very powerful motivation for the benefit of all sentient beings, the bodhicitta. Okay, so that's very different than, you know, I'm cooking lunch for 30 people and I'm in a tizzy and here it is, I got it on the table. Okay, so you might still be you know, cooking the lunch and in a tizzy and get it on the table. But you, you have a different thought behind it. Okay? So the karma you create is different. And so even if we're just helping one being, if we think this being is, in, is representative of all sentient beings. Okay? Or the whole thing when we're washing the, the dishes or sweeping the floor, we're, we're sweeping away the defilements of sentient beings. We're cleansing the defilement of sentient beings. So, you know, we find a way to bring this compassion and bodhicitta into even the small actions we do in life that would normally be at best neutral karma, but we, in that way, transform them into very powerful causes for enlightenment. Okay? So that's the power of bodhicitta, and that's you know, why we try and practice it and why we try and bring it into everything we do and why our first thought when we wake up in the morning, you know, to not harm, to benefit, and to generate bodhicitta. Okay? Okay, so this was by the, the power of um, his compassion that that happened. But that strong man, that charioteer, the next verse says, that strong man is now a Buddha while we are still left behind in samsara. And when we contemplate why this is so, it is clear that it is due to this fact. 
the mind of compassion arose in his mind stream, but not in ours. Okay? So, you know, the Buddha was at one time an ordinary being like us. Maybe we were that friend pulling the cart of, you know, burning iron up the hill with the Buddha. And he was the one who generated compassion for us and by that got born in the in the Deva realm. You know, but the point of this verse is that the Buddha was once an ordinary being like us. And in previous lives, we knew the Buddha, even before the Buddha became a bodhisattva, you know. We knew the Buddha. We were hanging out with the Buddha. But the Buddha is now that continuity of that person we were hanging out with, you know, going to the movies with, yeah, going out to lunch with, yeah, screaming at, at work. Um, you know, that person has continuity of that person has now become a Buddha. We're left behind in samsara. Why? Okay, why? Well, there's no God who we can say is partial. You know, it's not like somebody favored somebody else and not us. You know, there's no idea of a controlling or managing God. Can't blame God, you know. So why, why is it that that person is now a Buddha and we're not? Okay. Because that person generated the great compassion and we didn't. Yeah, We generated the eight worldly dharmas. That person generated great compassion. So it's in the difference in how the mind thinks. You know? I mean, that's the difference between samsara and nirvana. It's how, what's going on in the mind. That's all it is. It's not when you attain nirvana, you move somewhere else. Okay? It's just, it's a change in the mind. So it's not even doing, you know, really hard physical labor. Yeah, it's not like to attain enlightenment or practice dharma, you have to do so much hard physical labor that's dangerous and get exhausted and, you know sweat and get dirty and work in the cold and work in the heat and, you know, have people swear at you and tell you you're not working right. You know, that's not what it's, we have to go through to become enlightened. And also to get enlightened, it's not like we have to find the, the right office in the government of the universe to petition to and say, you know, look, I've been demanding enlightenment for a long time and you haven't given it. The other way we attain enlightenment is by changing the mind. Changing the mind. Okay? So it's actually easier than going and complaining and doing all this other stuff. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's just changing our thought. And a thought isn't even anything physical. It's changing the thought. Okay? What brand of partiality do you engage in great compassion? You realize the faults that ensue from securing one's own welfare and the benefits that ensue from accomplishing only the welfare of others. Okay, so here's an interesting question. What kind of brand, what brand of, of partiality do you engage in great compassion? Okay, so it's asking great compassion, a great compassionate one, you know, what kind of partiality do you engage in? Because us, we sentient beings, we're very partial, aren't we? Yeah? 
We have all of our opinions. We like these people. We don't like these people. You know, those ones can drop dead and go for it to go to hell for as much as we care. These ones here, we're going to do everything we possibly can to. We never want to be separated from, you know. We're, we don't have a balanced, equal mind at all. We're extremely partial. Okay? So what kind of partiality does somebody with great compassion have? Well, they don't have the kind of partiality we have. Because before generating great compassion, you have to meditate on equanimity, which is getting rid of the attachment to friends, the aversion to enemies, and the apathy to strangers. So we have to do all of that kind of work actually before even being able to generate great compassion that's, that's directed towards all sentient beings. Okay. In fact, you know, the equanimity meditation comes, bef- is, it comes before any of the seven points in the seven-point instruction. It become, comes before any of the points in the equalizing and exchanging self and others. Okay, so what kind of a partiality does someone with great compassion engage in? Okay, they realize the faults that ensue from securing one's own welfare and the benefits that ensue from accomplishing only the welfare of others. So, seeing the faults that come from working only for one's own benefit and the, and the good qualities, the advantages that come working for the benefit of others then one with great compassion is partial towards working for the benefit of others and partial against working for their own benefit. Okay? Do you see how that's working? That kind of partiality? Very different than our partiality, isn't it? Yeah? It's not so easy to be impartial. Because, you know, people appear... We buy in so much to the appearances of this life and the relationships with this life. And, you know, this person is really like this way permanently, forever and ever. Yeah? Or we're in this relationship permanently, forever and ever. You know, they have some special quality that makes them, you know much more worthy of my affection than anybody else. But, you know, there's, there's, that's not true. Our mind is just completely imputing stuff, completely projecting stuff. Because the person we think is so wonderful, somebody else thinks is a jerk. Okay, and the person we think is a jerk, somebody else thinks is just like, you know, Buddha boy. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you can see that all this, how the qualities we, we see in people and how partial we all, it's all stuff dreamed up by our conceptualizations, by our partial mind. Yeah? It's not any kind of objective reality there. But we sure think there's an objective reality that that person in and of themselves, independent of any other factor, has some essence that is the most marvelous thing in this universe. At the same time, we're very happy that the Buddha is impartial towards us and towards other sentient beings. Okay. 
So we reserve the right to be partial, but we're very, we don't want the Buddhas and our teachers and other people to be partial, unless they're partial towards us. But, you know, they, they're not allowed to be partial against us, but of course you can't have one without having the other. If you're partial toward, then you're also going to be partial against. We're so funny, aren't we? Okay. So let's stop here. We have time for maybe one or two questions. Yeah? Well, I think I probably asked this before, but I mean, when doing something and expanding beyond cooking for 30, but really for all, mm-hmm. I, I get hung up because I, I feel like, you know, uh, what's my level of sincerity or contriveness? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so when we're thinking, you know, I'm cooking lunch for all sentient beings and I'm offering blissful wisdom nectar to all sentient beings, then one part of our mind says, you phony, (laughs) this is just make-believe. You aren't doing that. You don't really care about all sentient beings. Even if you did, you're not really offering them this food because they're not getting it. Okay? (laughs) Yeah? And so we sit there and have this kind of doubt. So we need to remember at this time that the, the point is not that we're able to satisfy the hunger of all sentient beings. The point is that we're able to develop an intense level of compassion that can spread out towards all sentient beings. And the way we develop compassion is by familiarization and habituation. It's not like it's going to come and boing us on the head. So we need to think like this as often and as much as possible because thinking like this wears down our self-centeredness. And it wears down our self-centeredness to to the extent that even though maybe we can't feed all sentient beings throughout the universe with with wisdom nectar, we might happen to meet somebody who asks us for food someday and we'll want to give them food. Okay, so it does have some effect. It loosens up our stinginess and our and our um, self preoccupation. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a segue to Leah's question. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about the limit that happiness has. That mm-hmm. you think about happiness and there's a limit to wishing happiness, and then reflecting on um, the four immeasurables and and how we say, I, may all beings be happy. Mm-hmm. And my, my limited understanding, very limited, is that it's like that's just it's like, it's like training us, it's like getting our minds to open up so that we can um, know how to give graciously or to mm-hmm. think about this. Mm-hmm. And then, I, in hearing your teachings this morning, I, I felt that I could add so much more now to that meditation on mm-hmm. happiness mm-hmm. not only may they be free from suffering and free from which is what I usually do and have pleasurable experiences which I think is important also to create the causes mm-hmm. and I'm wrong on that to create the causes so that you can um, be receiving the dharma because you need those pleasurable causes mm-hmm. and then taking it even further so that you can have the positive conditions so that you can create the causes to meet the dharma so that you can eradicate ignorance and reach the enlightened mind. Mm-hmm. So it seems for me that that meditation on happiness, mm-hmm. um, I need to ex- 
expand those. Yes. I stop. I think when I say, when, I think it's that English again. Because mm-hmm. when I think happy, I'm like, be happy. Yeah. Um, have happy things. Yeah. You know, have a nice, comfortable bed, sleep long. You know, the things that I think <laughs> brings me happiness. <laughs> yeah. Um, happy. Just happy. Yeah. And, I, the, and maybe it's just me, but I, I like to maybe change that word. Because happiness, I don't know about happy. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have a real good English word. You know, when we say all sentient beings have happiness in its causes, happy we think of, you know, going to the movies and a comfortable bed and a swimming pool and, you know, four of the eight worldly dharmas having four and having not having the other four, and that's what we think of as happy. And there's not a really good English word. You know, we have joy and bliss and rapture and ecstasy but none of them are really and the reason is because we basically don't think beyond this life you know we need a word that connotes happiness beyond this life yeah because when you really think about what is meant by happiness you know, we could wish people have cars and swimming pools and washing machines and computers and they might actually have more pain and suffering because of that, yeah. So what we have to, what when you're doing the uh, the four measurables, you have to really think. Well, what is happiness that, that we're wishing? And the, when we say may sentient beings be free of su- suffering, we should say may they be free of dukkha and its causes. And think of the three kinds of dukkha. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you know corresponding to the three kinds of dukkha, you're going to have different kinds of happiness, like the happiness of not being under the control of ignorance, afflictions, and karma. Okay. But then, as you said, before we can get to the happiness of liberation, we need to create the causes for a precious human life. Yeah. Because it isn't like we're not, we're going to necessarily go from this life to liberation all at one step. So we have to create the causes for many good rebirths, and that's by keeping ethical conduct. So when we say, may sentient beings have happiness in its causes, we're saying, you know, may they have good future rebirths with all the conditions to meet the Dharma, and may they create the causes by having good ethical conduct and practicing generosity and having contact with the Dharma and developing faith and so on and so forth. Okay, so it's really something, I mean, to really do the four immeasurables well, you have to think deeply about what it is you're wishing for beings and be very, very expensive. Expensive? Expensive. Okay, so let's stop. <laughs>